0: What is God asking of you? What does the Bible say about His expectations? In this season of Fast, Pray, Do, we'll dig deeper into God's Word and learn how we can live beyond ourselves and truly live out the calling of the Lord. For more information, visit us online at lifepointaz.com. Good morning and Happy New Year. It's great to see you all here this morning. We are starting a brand new series called Fast, Pray, do and I am thrilled and excited to be able to kick this off with you. The fast pray season is always one of my favorite times, it's the best way to start the year. And all I can say is, you will be blessed by it should you uh, have the courage to step out and engage in it. And so, first of all, uh, before we get going, I just want to explain there's these two booklets that you should have gotten. One is the fast pray do guide what is fasting and prayer about? Why do we still do it? Isn't it an outdated method? uh... all of those questions we answer for you uh... what to fast from types of fast to do over the next three weeks and then the second one is the fast pray do devotional and the really cool thing is uh... alan heller with walk and talk ministries has developed this specifically for us for this season we sat down with him months ago uh, talked about our culture our people and what we would be going through And so he built this for us. So the uh, devotionals are specifically for us, the activities, the prayers. And then you'll notice each uh, day also has a children's activity for you to do with your kids. So it's a great way for the whole family to be involved. So don't forget to pick one of these up. Uh, It's important that each one of you has has one, not just one for the whole family, but for each person. And then lastly, you'll see in the back here, it says notes. And so what I'd encourage you to do is, first of all, write down, in the notes, what it is that you'll be fasting from. And secondly, is what do you want to hear from the Lord during this time? This is important because the purpose of a fast is not just to do it for the sake of doing it. It is not a moral obligation that we need to fulfill. The purpose of a fast is that we would be able to rid ourselves of a spirit of unbelief. And we'll talk more about that as as we go through the next few weeks. But It's not just for the spiritual uh, hearing the Lord's voice. It actually goes much deeper in that to reaffirming to God bringing about revelation of a spirit of belief of who he is. And so we encourage you in this time to write down the thing it is that you're seeking from the Lord. Okay, before we jump into James, we're going to be James in the book of James chapters 1 and 2. I want us to look at this prophecy. So Kirk Cotter is a pastor. Uh, He's the men's and couples pastor from Living Streams Church. Um, Incredible prophetic giftings on his life. Uh, He's the one who eight years ago said that the men's retreat would be more than 500 men and that we would sell out the entire Lost Canyon camp And uh, this last year we did that. We had over 500 men. We sold it out. Uh, And he gave this prophecy when it was just living streams in a couple small churches and less than 100 men. And so he's a man who hears from the Lord, has big visions, and the Lord speaks to him. And so he sent me this. Earlier this week, and I thought it was incredible because he's not someone that I talk to on a regular basis. I don't talk to him monthly; uh, maybe a couple times a year, we'll catch up and see how things are going. And, but he said he was praying at the end of 2017, and the Lord gave him this sp- prophecy specifically for LifePoint. And so I'll have it up on the screen, and then we're going to have it on our website and our Facebook page as well. If you'd like to print it out and stick it somewhere where you'll see it, because this is for. The people of Life Point, not just pastors and staff. He said specifically, this is for the people of Life Point. And what I think you're going to see is it rings incredibly true to our people. And I already have had a lot of people tell me, oh my gosh, that spoke to me directly. So this is what he said. I feel many approaching this year with an inconsistent walk with Jesus. You've been up one day and down the next, but the Lord gave me Psalm 1, 1 through 3 for you. Which is, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the paths of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. And then this is what he wrote. You're about to be blessed as you become planted by the river of his spirit and his presence. As you delight in him and his word, he's about to give you the desires of your heart. No more dryness and bareness, because your leaf shall not wither, but you will grow and prosper as your soul prospers. When the winds blow and the world is shaking around you, your roots will keep going deeper into my river and you will thrive, even in the hot summer seasons of life. Your life will produce more and more fruit, fruit that will remain fruit that will further my kingdom, fruit that will bring me glory. This will be a season when you will move from wandering in the wilderness to crossing over into the good land I have for you, a land of great fruitfulness and harvest. Many have been unsure of my calling in your life. As you draw near to me in that secret place of my presence, you will hear my voice and my heart for your destiny. You will synchronize your life to the good plans I have for you, plans to give you a hope and a future. You will begin to recognize opportunities that are from me and see the doors I have for you open wide. Beautiful, isn't it? Amazing how connected he was with what he has been showing the pastors and the staff of this church. It was amazing to see how connected those words were with what we have felt with the fast pray do. That this will be a season of doing. That this year people will get off the sidelines. Whether you're 82 or you're 8. This is for you. There is nobody who sits on the bench. There is nobody who takes a free ride at LifePoint. We want to see everybody doing and getting out there. And being the hands and the feet and this word, this understanding that the dry land, that so often we ask God for blessing and we're just wandering in circles in the wilderness. And to hear that word, that this is the time to enter the promised land. But remember, when they entered the promised land, nobody sat on the sidelines. Everyone had a job. Everyone had a place. And here at Life Point, we want that to be true for us as well. And so just thank you, Kurt, for that. Uh, take that with you this year. Read it. Remember it. And we hope you're blessed by that. Okay, so we're going to be in the book of James. James chapter 1, 19 through 27, and uh, James 2. And I just want to say, I love James. I think I would have gotten along with James very well, because he's, uh, he's straightened to the point. He doesn't beat around the bush, mince words, whatever you want to say. He's a little sarcastic in how he writes, and he doesn't really speak so as to spare people's feelings, which I can relate to. And sometimes works out for me, sometimes works against me. But I I want you to see here uh, what he's going to say about what it means to be a doer as he speaks uh, to the people who have heard Paul's message, have heard the letter from Rome's on what faith is, and then he's going to follow it up. And I want, you, I want you to hang with me here because there's going to be some things that maybe are tough or, or theologically uh, you've got a problem with. But stick with me on this and, and we're going to walk through those. So James 1 verse 19 through 27 says this. You must understand this, my beloved. Let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For your anger does not produce God's righteousness. Therefore, rid yourselves of all sordidness and rank growth of wickedness, and welcome with meekness the implanted word that has the power. To save your souls now this whole first section you could do an entire sermon just on this just on these words right don't be angry uh, be hearers of the word uh, be people who, who do not allow strife to rise up and, and, and overpower you but in order to get to verse 22 I wanted to read that that this is what he's coming off of verse 22 be doers of the word not merely hearers who deceive themselves. Be doers of the word, not merely hearers who deceive themselves. It's a way of saying, let your walk match your talk, right? Don't be all talk and no action. 23, for if any are hearers of the word and not doers, they are like those who look at themselves in the mirror, for they look at themselves and on going away immediately forget what they were like. But those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty and persevere, being not hearers who forget, but doers who act, They will be blessed in their doing. If any think they are religious and do not bridle their tongues, they deceive their hearts. Their religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, that we should take care of the orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself unstained by the world. Now, to understand this mirror analogy, you have to know that mirrors were not like what we have today, glass with a reflective coating behind it. Mirrors in James' time would have been uh, highly polished metals, and they wouldn't have been everywhere, right? They wouldn't have been walking down the street. You ever do that, and you see those tall glass things, and you're walking, and there you are and the, oops, I it in, yep, I look good. It, that, that's not James, and so there weren't mirrors constantly reminding people what they look like. In fact, many of the poorer people may have very few opportunities outside of a reflective stream to actually see what they look like and get that image. And so what he's saying is, when you are someone who just hears the word of God, says, sure, I'll take that, and then never let do anything with it, you're as worthless as somebody who looks at themselves in the mirror and completely forget what they look like. And what he's saying by that is, you forget your identity. Right? You forget the identity of whose you are. And so he says take with you, take with you, for those who are doers of the word they take with themselves the perfect law, the law of liberty that perseveres and they pull it out. And when they are confronted by their identity when they are confronted by the things of the world they don't forget who they are but they can pull out the law and they can say this is who I am and so that is why I will do this or I will do that. I will act because I have not forgotten whose I am. Okay, so James is setting up this idea, this doing versus just hearing. And he's going to really go after it in chapter 2. And so in chapter 2, verse 12 through 26, and we'll have these on the screen, but you can turn to it as well. He's going to talk about, he's going to take this concept further. And I I want you to see this, because this is where he becomes sort of facetious, uh, sarcastic. This is the James I love. But let's just look at these. Verse 12. So speak... And so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be without mercy to anyone who has shown no mercy. For mercy triumphs over judgment. No mincing of words there, is there? Right? We get to this idea of forgiveness. We get to the idea of forgiving. And the Bible's full of these kind of stories. But James just comes with it and says, You want to show no mercy in your own judgment? You will receive no mercy in your judgment. And I love the statement, mercy triumphs over judgment. That's our God. People think God is this judging being that just can't wait to crush people under the weight of their own sin. And James reaffirms our God is a God of mercy, for mercy triumphs over judgment. So be people who actively do mercy to one another. Okay, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? Okay, automatically, here we go. The faith versus works debate, right? Just look look at this question. Can faith save you, right? Can faith save you? Well, What does Paul say in Romans? We just spent the last four or five months in the book of Romans. What does Paul say? Paul says we are saved by what? By faith alone. We are saved by faith alone. And now I'm reading James, and James says point blank that faith without works is dead. And then he's going to go on. He's going to ask the question, can faith save you? And then he's going to give us this, uh, this analogy. He's going to say, if a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what good is that? So faith by itself, if there are no works, is dead. Is dead. So before I go on, I just got to address this because oftentimes this is one of those great popular sections of scripture where people love to say, see, there goes the Bible contradicting itself. Paul very clearly in Romans says that we are saved by faith alone. James comes along and says, if you have faith without works, your faith is dead. Which is it? It can't both be true right which one is it well first of all i want you to know something that in the very early church when romans and the book of james were put together or the letters of romans and james were put together they were put as one book they were put as t- together and so you would have had paul's letter to rome and you would have had james's letter and they were put together why because what i want you to see is that what they're saying is complementary they are not separate And this is uh, what uh, one commentator said. It's like if you take uh, your hand and cover one eye and just see through one eye, what do you lose when you only look through one eye? You lose depth perception. You lose depth perception. I know this. My father, who has lost sight in one of his eyes, can tell you, and he's got great stories of running into stuff and small children and pets. It's really sad and funny at the same time. But you lose that depth perception. That ability to to understand the 3D effects of where you are in relation to things. And when you take what Paul said and you combine it with what James says, it's like looking at what Christ did on the cross, the redemption of man, with both eyes open, and you can have the proper depth perception. Uh, Philip Melanchthon, who was a protege of Martin Luther in regards to what Paul is saying and what James is saying, said it beautifully like this. In one sentence, he said... We are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that remains alone. Isn't that beautiful? We are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that remains alone. By a faith that should grow in understanding, and the understanding should produce about it a work of goodness. It should produce from the love of God a work that we desire to honor. We desire to obey. We desire to serve. Okay. Now I want to continue reading this in verse 18. So 17 was so faith by itself. If it has no works is dead. 18. But someone will say, this is his imaginary argument again. You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. And I, by my works, will show you my faith. You believe that God is one and you do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. One of my favorite verses in all of scripture, even the demons believe that God is one and they shudder. Verse 20, do you want to be shown, you senseless person, that faith apart from works is barren? Do you want to be shown, you senseless person? See the sarcasm? Do you see why I like James so much? That faith apart from works is barren, was not our ancestor Abraham justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was brought to completion by the works. Thus the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him his righteousness, and he was therefore called the friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works, not just by faith alone. Likewise was not Rahab the prostitute also justified by works when she welcomed the messengers and sent them out by another road? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith... Without works is also dead. Now, this is not a Works And and sometimes the word works can be misconstrued. And so there's other versions of the Bible that say deeds, right? Because we sometimes look at works and say, see, there it is. I have to work to earn my way into heaven. I have to work to earn a place in heaven. There is still something I must do to complete my righteousness, to complete the justification before an almighty God. And what I want you to see here is James is in no way saying that. Right? The work has already been done. Yes, there were works that needed to be completed. God did not just look down on mankind and say, Oh, I forgive all of the wickedness and sin. Let's just forget it ever happened and let's start over. No, a work happened. The Messiah came, born as a child to the virgin, grew up, lived the life, right? Right? started the ministry, spoke of the Father, died on the cross, was crucified for our sins and on the third day was risen. So a work did occur on our behalf. A work that we could not complete on our own and so the work occurred. The work is finished for your salvation and righteousness. That work is finished. There is no more work you can do to attain any sort of special glory or acceptance in the eyes of the Father. That work is finished. So what is James talking about then? He's talking about a works that are a result of a living faith. I'm going to explain this to you here because he takes, again, that's depth perception. He takes Paul's understanding, which Paul is wanting to get across to a people who always understood that there were works that they must do and there were things and rules. Remember the laws, over 600 that they had to follow. And he was trying to tell them, there is nothing more you can do. The son has already done everything to accomplish it. You are saved by faith alone. Now to get that full depth perception, James comes along and says, if you have a living faith, a living faith. Which has saved you should produce in you a desire to serve, a desire to love, a desire to give, a desire to care. This is what James is saying. You see, we know that James is in line with what Paul said, because if you look at James chapter 2, verse 5, he's going to use the same imagery there that Paul did, and he's going to show us the difference between an heir, that we are sons and daughters of the king, and someone who is working for wages. Now, let me ask you a question. When you get your wage, when do you get your wage? Before or after you complete the work? Right? After. After. I'm getting paid every two weeks. I don't get paid at the front end and then have to work two weeks. I work two weeks and then I get paid. And that's when the deposit is made after I have completed the work. Now, if it's an inheritance, when do I receive my inheritance? When I'm born. When I'm born. As soon as I am a child, that inheritance is mine. Now, you may have parents who wait to a certain age to give it. But the fact of the matter is, no matter what I do, that inheritance is mine. Now, this is exactly what James is affirming. He's saying, we are ears of the king. We have this inheritance. You do not have to work to achieve it. That is not where I'm going with this. He's saying, but let me talk with you about something here. Let me show you something important here. And I want to turn your attention to Jonathan Edwards, right? One of the uh, most incredible preachers of the 18th century did a sermon on James 2.19. And the title of the sermon, which is beautiful, was True Grace... Distinguished from the experience of devils, they just don't make sermon titles like they used to. He says, First of all, understand this, and this is where Paul, this is where James, I'm sorry, we've been in Romans for so long. This is where James is going with this. He says, You believe and say that God is one, you have faith that God is one. Good job. So do the demons, and they shudder. So do the demons. So here's the deal. We sometimes get all excited, and look what I've done, and look what I've accomplished, and I gave my life to Christ. You're welcome, God. You're welcome. I went ahead. I submitted to you. I said the prayer, and I've shown up at church for the last two years, only missed a couple of Sundays. Pretty good if I say so. Listen to worship music more than I do worldly music. Look at me. Look at what I'm doing. I've even taken a couple of those theology classes. I think I'm probably, I think I'm getting up there. I'm doing pretty good. And James says, really, you understand that demons believe that God is one. And they shudder at the presence of it and at the thought of it. And here's what I want you to see. This is what Jonathan Edwards said in his sermon in the mid-18th century. And this is beautiful. There's two things we understand from this is what James is saying as he affirms this faith and works congruency, how how they go in hand in hand. He says this. He says, first of all, a demon will have greater theological knowledge than you will most likely ever attain in your life. Just let that settle in for a second. A demon has greater theological understanding than some of the greatest theologians that have ever lived on this world. They have a greater understanding of the Godhead, of the Trinity, of Christ and the Holy Spirit. They know who God is. They believe he is one God. And then the second thing Edward says is they don't just believe it. They respect and shudder at the power of it. That's the shudder. That's the word there is they respect it. They fear the greatness of God. They actually fear how powerful he is. They know how powerful he is. And this is why what James says here is so amazing because what he's going to ask us is do you have a living faith? Or do you just have a faith that God is there? Is your faith active? Do you have a living faith? So is your faith dead? Because if it's dead, it won't bear any fruit. Dead things don't grow. Dead things don't reproduce. But living things do. So he goes on and says, if your faith is alive, it will produce this fruit. And so here are the two things it will produce. And I want you to see this. The fruit it produces is twofold if I have a living faith. First, it produces uh, an aliveness towards other people. And James gives this example. Say you come across someone who is naked and hungry. And all you say to them is, go be warm and well fed. I will pray for you. He says, if you do that, you are worthless. Your faith is worthless. The relationship that you claim to have with an almighty God is worthless. It's not alive toward them because you do not recognize the nakedness and homelessness that you come from being spiritually poor. Right? I want you to see that. We should be finding ourselves growing in graciousness towards people who physically, all the things we are spiritually, they embody physically. That's the understanding here. That's what James is saying. He's saying, do you realize this? Do you realize that, that that physical nakedness, physical hunger is a picture for who we are spiritually, that we are naked and hungry spiritually? And if it weren't for God and Jesus on the cross and, and the grace and mercy he showed us, we would still be that way. There's this great place in Galatians six fourteen through 15 where Paul says, I glory in the cross of Christ through which the world is crucified to me and I to the world. Do you know what that means? It means if you actually have faith, not in the grace of Christ, but in yourself, you are going to be condescending to people who are a mess. That's the first sign your faith is dead. That's the first sign your faith is dead. And here's the tough thing. We judge and we see people right off the bat, and we look and we say, you are worth me giving my time and money to, you are not don't we? I've been guilty of it certainly and it pains my heart to think about it. We see the mother with the children and we could tell that clearly Her, she's frazzled and, and she's alone with them and we say, let's help her, let's give her that. We see the man who's able to walk and looks and appears to be physically healthy and we say, get away from me. No, you're not getting anything. And we make these judgments instantly, these snap judgments. And, and then Here's what's crazy, and I I, I do this, is we justify the judgment. We say, well, he's just going to take advantage of me. This guy can actually work. He's a shyster. This is what he's doing. And you know what the Lord says? The Lord says, so what? So what? Everything you're giving him is from what? Is it from my wage? Is it what I've earned with my works? No, everything you're giving him is the inheritance. Is the inheritance. So give it. It's been given to you freely, Give it away freely. And so we look at all these reasons where I can't, I don't have the money, I don't have the finances. And we look at our physical checkbooks and then we make decisions on who we're going to bless and who we're going to serve based on that. And we forget the very foundational idea that when I accept the Lord as my Savior, I have a living faith. And in that faith, I recognize I am an heir and I have the full inheritance of heaven. My cup is always overflowing if I would see it, if I would believe it. And so let them take advantage. Now, I'm not saying that you continually be be taken advantage of by somebody. The Bible, Jesus also tells us that we should be uh, gentle as doves and wise as serpents. But I feel like we oftentimes err more on the judgment side than we do on the loving somebody side. And we often err on the side of uh, deciding whether or not they deserve it or not rather than just give it. And here's the hard thing. James is not just talking about give them money, give them clothes, give them food, and then walk away. You see, the true understanding of a living faith is one that looks at the person and says, Yes, let me take care of this need for you. Let me help with your food or your clothing or, or, or this bill. But could I come and just meet with you? Could I sit down and talk with you? See, it's the relationship. It's being part of the relationship. So when Paul says in Galatians, I glory in the cross of Christ through which the world is crucified to me and I to the world, what he's saying is my comfort is crucified to me. Money is crucified to keep me. Security, approval of the world have been crucified to me. And I will have courage because I am willing now to take a risk. I am willing to serve others at the cost of myself because I realize I am not giving out of my own strength, out of my own financial account, but I'm giving out of the account that has been granted to me through inheritance. Amen? Amen. Secondly, The second thing a living faith does is it shows us that we are alive toward God. And here we have the ultimate example of faith. And it says uh, in James, you foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Look at Abraham. Abraham was considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. You see, it was then that he was called a friend of God. And let me just say this. This is the bottom line of this whole thing. And in Jonathan Edwards' sermon on this passage, it's the bottom line of what James is trying to say. I want you to see this. You want to see the difference between a dead faith and a living faith? This is what Edwards said. A dead faith may obey God for what you get out of it or what you can avoid. A dead faith may obey God for what you get out of it or what you can avoid. It's just shuddering. It's possible to be very religious and then all your religiosity is just shuddering. It's just fear. He says true faith wants friendship with God. True faith. Longs for God. So here you are going to school and getting your degree and journaling and listening to worship music and attending church and hosting a small group. And you quit smoking and you quit drinking and you quit watching pornography or whatever sin, whatever moral thing you thought it is God wanted from you. And James says, Perfect, you have reached level demon. <laughs> You are no better than the demons, for they themselves know God at a theological level. They themselves fear God. They themselves respect the power of God. And here's what, here's what he says. This is what Edward says at the end of his. And this, I want you to see this because this is the difference. This is the difference between a child of God with a living faith and, and a demon. Ready? A false faith can see the holiness of God can see the wisdom of God, can see the greatness and power of God, and can even see something of the love of God. But the one thing a false faith can never see is the loveliness of God. True faith wants to please God just because of who he is, not for what you get, not for what you can avoid. That's the separation. That's the difference. The demon's And human beings share a level of faith that may have a strong sense of the awesomeness of God. They may have a sense of the wisdom of God. They may even have an understanding of what it means to love God. But the difference is they'll never see the beauty and the divine loveliness of the Father. They can't. They refuse. That's what a living faith does. When Christians come to see Christ's divine loveliness, it's not difficult to conceive how the blood of Christ should be esteemed so precious as to be worthy to be accepted as a compensation for the greatest sins. That's how Edwards closed his sermon. That it's not hard to see how the blood of Christ should be esteemed so precious as to be worthy to be accepted as a compensation for the greatest sins. When you see the beauty of what has been done, when you come to long for it, just because of what it is, not because of what He can do for you. When you truly begin to love Christ, you see the preciousness of Him. And the Christian properly sees and understands the very reason you are accepted before God. Then you understand what grace is, you understand the mercy, and you're from that overflow, you are able to serve. From that overflow, you're able to love others, as Christ has called us to. Do you see that? See, we aren't justified by the works. We don't do more works to get to different levels of heaven or different levels of righteousness or different commanders in God's army. The works do not justify us. But at the same time, if you say you love God and you have no works, James is sort of calling you out and saying, well, what kind of love do you have then? Because when I look at princes and princesses, I see they don't struggle with what they will eat or what they will wear. They know it's taken care of. So why, as a Christian body, do we struggle so much with the things of the world? Do we worry ourselves and become anxious so much with the things of the world? It's because we have an unbelief that we are actually heirs, sons and daughters of the King. And we respect Him, and we are in awe of Him, and we are in fear of what it could mean not to, not to accept Him, hell and separation and all that. And we allow those things to be what drive us in this life but we don't actually love him we fail to see the beauty and the loveliness of him it is the very thing that caused a third of the angels to be cast out so they failed to see they would not see the loveliness and beauty of God it isn't their theological stance it isn't even their morals so to speak it's the fact that they cannot see the loveliness of God so you Until you see that you're saved by grace alone, not because of your works, you won't understand it. Edward's final words on the subject were that the refusal to see the beauty of Jesus is the essence of pride in life. It's the essence of unbelief. It's the refusal to see his beauty. The, the, The inability to love for the sake of love not because of what he can do for me or what he can protect me from, but just because he is who he is. That's the season I wanna focus on this. Fast Pray Do is not about us as a church doing more for headlines or so we can be a more righteous church or we're hoping God will bless us if we do more. It is about us understanding and being a people who truly love the Lord. And if I have to teach this similar sermon over and over again until I get it, until the pastors get it, until it flows down through every person who sits in these seats and in this building, that they understand that we are a church who loves God, not for what he can bring us, but merely for who he is, then we will see the power. We will see the miracles of God. When we take unbelief and we rid ourselves of unbelief, we will see the majesty and power of God enacted, not just on Sunday mornings, but through every... Every day of the week it's going to be powerful the Lord has already shown me and pastors and the staff as we've talked he's shown me it's going to be powerful it's coming there is going to be a movement of the spirit at life point that word from Kurt is dead on and the reason I took it and shared it in front of all of you this morning is I don't want to be the only one who has it I want you to know that this is a season. This is a year of moving from the wilderness into the promised land. But it's not just like we're all going to sit here and be like, well, it's about time. Let's make it happen. No, let's walk. Let's serve. Let's love others. But if we're to do that, we have to be doing it with a living faith. It's the essence of a living faith. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time and this message. Thank you, Lord, that you are in this. Thank you, Lord, that you are here in this building right now, that your spirit is here, has fallen on me, has fallen on the worship. And Lord, for any who would reach out and take of it, Lord, we pray that they would have the courage to say, I, I Lord, I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord, not for what you can give, but for solely who you are. Abba, Father, thank you. Praise in the name of Jesus in this place as we spend this time and we take communion. In Jesus' name, amen.